Last Sunday, we started uh, a new series that we are calling Truth Over Trend, and uh, we are looking at beliefs and ideas uh, and values and practices that are prevalent in our culture today, uh, and we're really looking at them, examining them in the light of, of the truth of God's Word. And so this morning, I want us to look to the Scripture today uh, for God's perspective on a challenging topic. And that topic today is the topic of abortion. And I want to, I really want to share with you God's, God's truth, God's word uh, on this uh, very, very challenging topic. Now, obviously, this is an appropriate Sunday for us to do this because today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday was first designated by President Ronald Reagan in 1984 be, uh, as the third Sunday in January because of its proximity uh, to that decision that was handed down in the Supreme Court case, Roe versus Wade. Uh, that happened January 22nd, 1973. And since that decision was handed down, over 60 million babies have been aborted in this country. And so if, as we're thinking about this and as I'm kind of introducing this topic if this sounds political to you let me let me just kind of share my heart with you on this I have no interest uh, in your politics I, I really don't um, we have Republicans here we have Democrats here and uh, I I love you all just like we have IU fans and Purdue fans and Notre Dame fans and I I love them all or most of them anyway so um, and so I'm really not interested in approaching this politically I'm not, I'm not interested in approaching it biologically, even though there'd be a great case there. I, I'm not even interested in approaching this sociologically. There'd be a good case there. I want to just present it to you theologically. And the reason why I want to do this, church, in the 25 years that I've pastored, I, I've never preached on this, not one time. And, uh, and so... Part of what I want to do is help you see the truth of God's word. And part of that is knowing that I'll stand before God and give an account of my, of my preaching and my ministry uh, to Christ. And so, so I just want to do that with faithfulness. And, uh, and uh, as imperfect as I am, I, 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 uh, I just want God to be honored because truth is, is shared here. And so, and so that's, that's my motive today. I, I'm not at all... Uh, thinking about this through any kind of political lens. But yet it's a challenge to talk about this today because our country is very much divided politically, especially when it comes uh, to this issue. We, you know, you have one group that says we're pro-life and we are, we are standing for the rights of babies and the unborn. And then you have, you have the other side which says we're pro-choice and we are standing for the rights of women. And so as citizens, we're forced to take sides in this issue. We're, we're forced uh, to, to pick a side and to run with it. But it's interesting because the truth is this either-or proposition is really not an either-or proposition for Jesus. And the reason why I say that is because Jesus was both pro-baby and pro-woman. I mean, think about it. He was born to an unwed teenage mother. And I'm sure there were occasions where Mary and Jesus talked about the challenge that she had to endure 
being pregnant and unwed in the village of Nazareth. It had to be difficult for her. And I believe that experience shaped the ministry of Jesus. Because what you see publicly and demonstratively is that Jesus loved women and children because he was constantly elevating their status in a very sinfully chauvinistic society. Let me give you an example. There was, there was a woman caught in the act of adultery by, by some religious leaders and they, they, they grabbed her and dragged her into the marketplace where Jesus was. They threw her at, at the feet of Jesus and, and uh, with stones in hand, they said to Jesus, the law of Moses requires that she be stoned. What do you say? And so they weren't really weren't interested in the woman. They were just interested in setting a trap for Jesus because their thinking was whatever he said, they were going to be able to use against him. And so what's interesting is they asked the question, what do you say? Jesus didn't say anything at first. All he did was bend over and he started writing something in the sand. Now, we don't know what he wrote in the sand. John doesn't tell us that. It could have been, you know, a message to the woman saying, I'm not going to let them hurt you. It, it, it could have been, you know, the writing of the names of her accusers in that circle that day and uh, their sins underneath their names. That, 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 could, that could have been it. But he doesn't say anything. And finally, after a few moments go by, he, he, you know, he stands up and he says, well, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And then one by one, all you could hear was rocks hitting the ground and her accusers walking away. And after a few moments, it was just Jesus and her, just one-on-one. -on -one. And so he bends down and gets eye-to-eye -eye with her, and he says, Dear one, is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, No. And he says, Neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. Now, I love that story. Because what the Bible tells us is that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And I think when you think about Jesus' response there, that message of I don't condemn you is a message of grace, is it not? It is. And then that message of go leave your life of sin, that's a message of truth. It's a statement of truth. And so Jesus came full of grace and truth. Well, let's contextualize it a little bit more. Let's, let's imagine Jesus not in a, in a marketplace with a woman caught in adultery, but let's, let's imagine Jesus around a modern-day abortion clinic today. And with that abortion clinic, there's an entrance and an exit. And where do you think you would find Jesus? Well, it really depends on the day. It really depends on the woman. Uh, some days he would be at the entrance as, as women are walking in to this abortion clinic. And what would he say? He would, he would communicate grace and truth, right? He would say, he would say to a woman, I, I love you. You don't have to carry this burden alone. Give me a chance to work. Give me a chance to show you how I can take heartbreak and turn it into good. I think that's what he would say. And then I think other days, I think you would find him at the exit as women are coming out of the clinic. And I think you would find grace and truth. I, I think you would hear Jesus saying, I love you. I care about you. You don't have to carry this burden alone. Give me a chance to work. Let me help you. 
You see, the Bible says Jesus came in grace and in truth, and that's, that's what I want to do today, is offer that very same grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, church, if, if you're here today, or maybe you're listening online, and you've had an abortion, if you've facilitated, you know, an abortion, if you've, if you've encouraged someone uh, to get an abortion, the thing that I would share with you is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies are new every morning. And that is the gospel in a nutshell. And maybe you're considering an abortion. Maybe you know someone who is considering an abortion. And I think what Jesus offers there is not only grace, but also truth. The truth that we know that sets us free. And so there's really good news all around this, even though it's a, such a difficult topic. Now, um, I think what makes it so challenging and so difficult is that the, the Bible really doesn't speak directly to the issue of abortion. And so the reason for that, it's a pretty good reason for that, uh, in, in the Old Testament, in Old Testament times, a mother would never even consider terminating uh, the life of uh, the baby inside of her. She, it wouldn't even be an option. But we know things changed in the New Testament world because in the New Testament world, we're dealing with the Mediterranean world, we're dealing with the, the Greek and Roman empires, and we do know that abortion was practiced occasionally. But again, it was practiced occasionally because of the obvious uh, physical danger that was, that was a possibility because of the, the lack of medical technology. And so what the ancient Greeks and Romans would do, which, which is what a, abortion accomplishes, is they would just wait for the child to be born and, uh, and then they would kill the child shortly, shortly thereafter. And so that's the, that's the world that is the world of the Bible that, um, that we get the truth of God's word from. Now, but here's the thing, church, there's several passages all throughout scripture that really gives us God's perspective on, on life and especially the sacredness of unborn life since he himself is the author of life. So we're gonna read today a section of Psalm 139 and I wanna give you a little bit of context for this because I, because I think the context it's always important, but it's, it's, it's especially important today because, because what, what David does as he's writing Psalm 39 is he's, he's thinking about God's knowledge of him. And uh, he talks about, he kind of opens and says, oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. And he's blown away at God's knowledge of him. And David has this, this desire to be known. And he's reflecting on the reality that God knows him inside and out. And so he begins the psalm that way, but he also ends, kind of ends the psalm that way, where he's, he's talking about, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. I want to know what you find. I want, I want to know what you see in me. But really the power of the psalm and the beauty of this psalm is found right in the middle, where he's talking about how God knew him even before he was born. That it's in this section that I really think we begin to see God's heart for the unborn and God's perspective on the unborn. So what I want us to do today is read Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18. I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word together today? So David writes this, for you formed my inward parts. 
you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So really what he's doing here is he's, he's reflecting on God's knowledge of him in the womb before he was even born. And he, he's really talking about how life is sacred to God. That's really his point. And so what I want to do this morning is I, I really want to give you three reasons why the life of an unborn child is sacred. Three reasons why the life of an unborn child is sacred. Number one. Every unborn child is a wonder. Every unborn child is a, is a creative wonder of God. It, it, it really is. I mean, when you think about a human embryo, it's more than just the union of a sperm and an egg. It is really an act of divine creation through human means. We talk about all the time that God chooses to work through people. He chooses to share his work through us. And this is, this is his exhibit A. It is God doing the creating, but he does it through human means. And it's very clear in this passage. Let me, let me show you God's, God's creative wonder in verse 13. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so, and so David understands, I mean, he's, I mean, he's been around the block a few times. He's not naive. He knows where babies come from. Now, admittedly, he doesn't know a lot about DNA. They hadn't discovered DNA back then. But he knows that, you know, he knows where, he knows about sex and he knows about where babies come from. And yet it's fascinating to me, his entire orientation, his entire perspective about babies is that they are a creation of God. That's why he says, you knitted me together. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so he's, as he's meditating on this, he's expressing, he's expressing awe and wonder of the glory of God that's in the conception of a human being. He is expressing just joy and amazement at God's creative hand. That, that is all over the entire process of human life coming to be. From conception to growth and development in the, in, in, you know, during the pregnancy to birth and then growth and development even after that. He realizes that this is an act of, act of creation by God. It is God creating and forming. It is very much the work of God. But God's creation of a person in the womb isn't just about the miracle of you know, bones and muscles and blood vessels and organs kind of coming together in a, in a, in a beauty and a complexity that is, that is just mind-boggling. That's not what's awe-inspiring here. Because even all of that happens 
in, in the animal world, right? I mean, even animals experience blood vessels and, and organs and, and muscles and bones and, and all of that. That's not, that's not what's stirring the awe and wonder here. You see, he's, he's alluding to the fact that humanity is different. Humanity is not like the animal kingdom. Humanity is on a completely different level. You see, not, you know, when, you th- when you think about just the genius of our creator, I mean, not only do we have all of those engineering marvels inside of us, but we also are stamped with the image of God. I mean, when you, when you think about this, what separates us from the animal world and the animals is that we have the image of God. They do not. We were created in God's image. They were not. Genesis 1:27 tells us this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so, and so this is why racism is so abhorrent to God because every human being regardless of their ethnicity the the color of their skin is an image bearer of God they reflect the divine image it doesn't make us God but it but it means that the stamp of God is on us and what that practically means is that it's not just the miracle of of a human body but it's it's the fact that we have a moral sense of right and wrong It's the fact that we have been given the gift of a creative genius ourselves. That there's a nobility in human life that doesn't exist in animal life. And so his response to this is very simply, I praise you. I praise you, God, because I know I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And when you think about it, I mean, when you hold a baby, don't when you hold a newborn, don't you just look in awe and wonder at God's, God's handiwork and God's creation? I mean, I mean, even an atheist will thank the God he doesn't believe in while he's holding um, a beautiful baby girl or, or a baby boy. And so, and so really a child, a, a human being is really a theology lesson in the glory and the praiseworthiness of God. See, every unborn child is a creative wonder. Now, If that's true, church, the implications are huge. The implications are absolutely significant. Let me let me let me give you some implications. You see, this is this is why abortion is wrong, is really this first implication, and that is abortion silences the praise of God. That's what abortion does. It silences the praise of God. I mean, think about grandparents will never be able to thank God for their grandson or granddaughter. They'll never be able to do that because abortion silences that praise and thanksgiving. Parents will never be able to look Godward and say, God, I just want to thank you for, you know, my son's sense of humor or, you know, my daughter's tenderheartedness or whatever it might be. Parents will never be able to do that. And the child itself will never, will never be able to say, you know, I, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, all of that is taken away. Because what abortion does is it robs God of the praise that he deserves. And so when you think about like, what happened in, 19, in the early 1970s, there was kind of a furor of international news when 
um, a man went after Michelangelo's uh, Piata, and this is, this is a sculpture of, of Mary holding the body of Jesus after he had been taken down uh, from the cross, and, and, and so it was in St. Peter's Basilica, and this man took a hammer and just started going after this thing, and uh, he hit it about 12 times before security was able to get him, was able to get him subdued, but he was, t- he was trying to destroy the work of God, or the work of Michelangelo. And I think what abortion does is it destroys the work of God, which is the creation of human life. It, it mars his, his artistry. It mars it and, and destroys it. And so it robs God of the praise that he deserves. I think another implication is this, that abortion destroys a person bearing the image of God. And I've already kind of talked about this. But when, when a baby is aborted, it, it destroys a person bearing that very image of God that we talked about a little bit earlier. Let me show you another passage from Genesis 9-6. The writer of Genesis says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And so what he's talking about is, he, he's really talking about whoever murders someone else the, that, the life of that person should be taken away. And the, the, the question is, well, why? Well, because God made that man in, in his own image. We're image bearers of God. And so he's, he's really pointing to the fact that, that human life is uniquely more precious than even animal life because human life bears the image of God. And so because human life bears the image of God, that life is sacred. The life of God is imprinted on us. In, in every way. Mother Teresa captured this so well. She was a very gutsy advocate of, of uh, you know, of, of adoption and, and uh, care for unborn children. She says this, every child has been created for greater things, to love and be loved in the image of God. Once a child is conceived, there is life. It's God's life. And that child has a right to live and to be cared for. I think another implication is this, that abortion denies God the chance to bring good out of heartbreak. When you think about what abortion does, it it really prevents God from being able to work in such a way that he brings good out of a heartbreak. And oftentimes the question is asked, you know, what about abortion in the case of rape? What about, the, what about abortion in the case of incest? What about abortion in the situation where their mother's life is in, is in danger? And I would say that those are very serious and, and very, uh, very difficult circumstances. They're horrible circumstances. But I would also say that they're very few in number. You see, the vast majority of abortions really occur just simply because of unwanted pregnancies. And so if you go back to our premise that unborn human life is a creative wonder of God, and if you go back to the scripture that says that men and women are created in the image of God, if that's true, then even babies born out of the horrible violence of rape and incest, even those babies 
are image bearers of God. Even those babies have the life of God in them. And so they shouldn't be aborted because they still are the creative wonder of God. And so, and so I recognize you could push back on me and say, well, Scott, well, what do you know about that? And, uh, and I would say, well, you know, I, I, I don't know a lot about that. But I do know this, that God specializes in taking heartbreak and turning it into to good. He specializes in taking evil and using it for good and turning it around for good. You know, there's a great story about this. There's a, a lady by the name of Ethel Waters. Some of you are older, you, you, you may recognize her. She's a famous singer and a famous jazz musician. And she would often sing at the Billy Graham Crusades around around the country and she would always sing that song his eyes on the sparrow and uh, she writes in her autobiography that that she was conceived um, you know because of the rape of her 13 year old mom that's how she came into this world Uh, her mom was raped and uh, she too would say I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and her story is an example of how, how God takes uh, good out of, out of heartbreak. And so every unborn child is a, is a creative wonder. Secondly, every unborn child really reflects God's plan. Let me, let me take you back to Psalm 139. Let me show you this from verses 15 and 16. Every unborn child reflects the plan of God. Look at verse 15. He says, he says my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, he says. Now, obviously, he's, he's using a metaphor here. He, he's not talking about that babies come uh, from the depths of the earth. They don't, they don't come from the ground. But he's, he's just simply reflecting on the mystery of that dark and wonderful place that is a mother's womb. There's just tremendous mystery right there. Uh, where that baby is given, given life. And so that's, that's what he's talking about. That even when I was in that place, he's saying, you saw me and, and my frame was not hidden from you. And he goes on and talks about how we are intricately woven. You know, he's talking about even with their lack of medical knowledge back then, he understands the complexity of our human bodies. He understands uh, the detail of the human body, the engineering marvel, uh, like I said a little bit earlier, that, that we really are. And he just stands in awe of God's creativity, of God's beauty in, in creating us. And he goes on even further. He says this in verse 16. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. And what that reminds me of, it reminds me of really the day that, uh, when, you know, when Luann was pregnant with our boys and we went into the, for you know, the checkup with the doctor and, and uh, we got to see the sonogram, right? We got to see that screen and, you know, the nurse just waves that magic wand over, you know, Luann's tummy. We got to see the boys and the nurse would say, well, here's his head, you know, and here's his feet and, oh, and he's going to be a boy, he's, you know, and we got to see that. And I'll, I'll never forget that. You know, we were blown away that we could see into that wonderfully dark place that is a mother's womb and so we were just blown away with that and so what he's saying here is this God you you could see what the sonogram can't see you you could see even earlier than that 
And even smaller than that, you saw my unformed substance. And then, he, and then this is where he starts talking about the plan of God. Listen to what he says here. This is, this is just fascinating that he's thinking about this. He says, your, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Before a single one came to be. And he's, what he's talking about there is he's talking about the plan that God has for every, every unborn child. And he's, he's talking about even specifically that the way that we're designed is already blueprinted into us even in the moment of conception. Like even in the moment that we're growing in our mother's womb, there's, there's certain things that have already been decided. You know, even before you, your first birthday or before you take your very first breath, God had set within us the blueprint of our lives, if you will. You know, when you think about our appearance or our talents, God gave us our personality then, our propensities, even, even our weaknesses. I mean, you think about your gifts, talents, and abilities, and interests, all of those things were already kind of blueprinted for you at that moment of conception. And it all reflects God's plan, his loving plan for you. Now, taking this a step further, that would also mean that even genetic difficulties, even genetic abnormalities, even though they may have their root in one sense in, in, in you know, some sinful act of human beings, but very much so they're under the care and the control of our Heavenly Father. So what that means is whether it's a difficulty of a birth defect or whether it's just living in a bad home, all things about our birth are under the control and the care of our, of our Heavenly Father. You, you remember the story of the, of the man that was born blind. This is in John 9. And uh, there was a man that was there that was born blind. And so the disciples are with Jesus and they're walking by this, this man. And, and so the disciples wanted to know who sinned that this man was born blind. Was it his parents I mean, like somebody had to cause this, right? Was it the parents or was it the man himself? And, and they asked Jesus, where did this come from? That was kind of the theology of the day. If you had a disability, it was because you, you, you did something wrong or somebody did something wrong connected to you. And, and Jesus said, no, that's not, that's not it. That's not why he was born blind. And Jesus says the reason why he's born blind is display, to display the work of God, to display the glory of God. That was why he was born blind. Now, church, think about what he's saying there. He's saying that this man was born blind and, and navigated the difficulties of trying to live life blind, growing up into adulthood blind, so that God would be glorified, so that the work of God would be revealed. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so, and so really, that, what, what this is telling us is that, that God's glory can be displayed even in genetic difficulties that God's love is revealed even in abnormalities and uh, we know that for example blindness is you know comes from the fact that we live in a sinful broken world we know that that's part of the deal we also know in the new heaven and new earth there's not going to be blindness there's not going to be genetic difficulties but his plan is revealed in his love and glory through them 
in this broken world that we live in. We just, we got to trust God to see that. Now, I think the implications of this are pretty massive as well. And I, I think very practically what this means is this, that really ordaining life is God's right, not ours. I mean, we may have the power to choose, but we don't have the right to choose. And what I mean by that is unborn human life belongs to God. And he is the creator, which means he's the owner. And what he's done is he's entrusted that life to us. We're simply stewards. Like Luann and I are stewards of our sons, Harrison and Ryan. But ultimately, they belong to him. And so he's the one who ordains life. And we can't take that away. We don't have the right to take that away. I think another implication of this is really huge. And and let me just share it this way to abort a you know a child because somebody determines that uh you know the quality of life is going to be impaired uh, because of a family situation or some kind of disability or handicap shows really a misunderstanding of quality of life really does you know for somebody to make that determination i think means that they don't understand what it means, what quality of life means. I think first and foremost, no one can say, none of us can say that no life is better than a difficult life. I don't think anybody else, I don't think any of us here have the, the ground to stand on to say that no life is better than a difficult life. And secondly, I would say this, that, you know, the world defines quality of life as health, wealth, and personal success. But I think God defines quality of life as being in relationship with him, submitting to him, knowing him, and walking with him. I think that's quality of life. And uh, learning, learning to love and learning to walk with him. And so, and so I just think that to deprive a child of the right to, to choose what they're going to do with God is, is wrong. Now, I would say to you that uh, aborted children go to heaven. I think, I think you can make a, a biblical case for that very easily. Uh, but even in that, you think about this. Um, those ab- aborted children will never be able to say, you know what, the one thing I've learned is God is faithful through all the difficulties of life. They'll never be able to say that. They'll never be able to tell how God worked through circumstances in their life to bring them to Christ. And so, and so I think it reflects God's plan. And that plan is always good, even when it seems disguised to us. Even when it seems like he's far away, he's not. He is right there with us. Third, let me say this. Every unborn child reflects God's highest thoughts. Let me show you verses 17 and 18. You can see it right here. David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. Church, you know what he's saying there? He's saying that that God has thought invested in you. That's what he's talking about. Do you know that God thinks about you? Isn't isn't that mind-boggling? I mean, we know that God thinks about the universe, and he's probably still trying to figure out why the Colts didn't make the playoffs and all that, but... um, I mean, he's got to think about those things, right? 
but he also thinks about you. And not just one or two thoughts about you. Like a lot of thoughts about you. Many thoughts about you. Can, can you imagine that? Do you guys know what I think about? I, I think about my wife, Luann. You know, she, she's my best friend. I think about her all the time. Obviously, I, I think about my boys, Harrison and Ryan. I, you know, I think about them all the time. I think about you all the time. Uh, I think about my favorite college football team, the Alabama Crimson Tide. I think about them all the time. I really do. Do, do you know what those things have in common? I love those things. You think about what you love. And what he's saying here is, I'm blown away that, God, you would think about me. And not just once a day. Oh, yeah, there's, you know, so-and-so in Greenwood, Indiana. No, he, he thinks about you all the time. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. He's invested a lot of thought in you. And in fact, when, when you talk about a lot of thought, he's, he, he even gives, a, he gives us kind of a number on how many thoughts he's thought about you. He talks about, man, how vast is the sum of your thoughts towards me? If I were to count them, they would outnumber the sand on the, on the shores all over the earth. So the next time you're walking on the beach, hopefully that's soon, I want you to think about how much God really thinks about it. Can I show you three verses of what God's thinking about us? Uh, I mean, these are kind of general, but, but I think you get the picture. Jeremiah 1.4, I love this passage of scripture. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah records, now the word of the Lord came to me. God spoke to me and he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So, so God had thoughts about Jeremiah. Not only that, but let's fast forward to the New Testament, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. God had thoughts about you. Notice how Paul puts this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Like he was already thinking of you at the foundation of the world. Isn't that mind-boggling? That you would be holy and blameless in his sight. In fact, he goes on to say, he doubles down on this and says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, which is really the praise of his glorious grace. I mean, that is, that is mind-blowing to me, that at the foundation of the world, God had you in mind. One more, let me show you Ephesians 2.10. Paul teases this theme out even more, for we are his workmanship. We're his poem. We've, we've talked about that word before. Workmanship is the word uh, from which we get the word uh, poem from. We are God's poem, his work of art, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Before what? Before you were born, that we should walk in them. So those are just some of God's thoughts. And what that very means, what that means very practically is to God, every child is a wanted child. Every child, unborn or born, is prized and pondered in the mind of God. That that's just incredible to think about. It really is. So as we kind of come to a close, let me 
let me just ask this question because I, because I think we need to, you know, we need to make this even more applicable. What do we do about this? If a child, if an unborn child is a wonder, if, if an unborn child is a part of God's plan and God has invested his highest thoughts into, what does that mean practically for us, like today? Well, I think first and foremost, it just simply means that as a church, we need to be coming alongside pregnant moms who feel like they have no other option. You know, I would love for our church to be the safest place for a pregnant mother who feels like she has no other option than abortion. I really do. I think the church should be a safe haven and where we, where we just, we love these moms, not because they're a project, but because they're people. And um, we love them and care for them and we minister to them. I think that's what we need to do. And a great way to do this is uh, there's a ministry that we support here in Johnson County called CareNet Pregnancy Center. Some of you uh, volunteer there on a regular basis. It's a tremendous ministry. And, uh, and so they're always looking for more help and more resources there to, to help them as they come alongside uh, pregnant moms. I think the second thing that we need to do, church, is you know we are a praying church. And uh, we need to be praying that God would just continue to change hearts and minds uh, about the subject of abortion. We need to be praying that people would come to Christ and, and, and come, you know, to, to the knowledge of the gospel. That we need to be praying for our government leaders. I think all of those things are things we need to be doing. I think third, we need to work for change in our society. We don't worship politics. We don't put our ultimate hope in politics. But I think there's a role for us as Christians to play in politics. And that role is bigger than just Republicans and Democrats. I think it's, it's really that role of being ambassadors in our society. For women and for the unborn. Where we can do that out of love and gentleness and humility. And make a huge difference as we do it. Let me close with this. You know, when you think about what Jesus did, I mean, what did he do? I mean, what, what do we celebrate every single Sunday? We, we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, right? We, he emptied himself and he left heaven's throne and he allowed himself to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, and conceived in the mother of a, of a teenager, Mary. He allowed himself, he surrendered himself, he submitted himself to grow and to develop in her womb those nine months, and then to be born, and, and then to grow, and, 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 and to develop, and then to live, and then what? To die for you and me, so that we could have that mercy and that grace. And then on the third day he rose. That's how much he loves this church. That's the proof of his, of his love. And he put infinite thought into that entire process, even from the foundation of the world. So, church, it, the good news of the gospel is no matter what's in your past, no matter what's in my past, the blood of Christ covers our past. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that life comes from you, that life is a gift from you. 
And we know that life is hard and difficult. We live life in a fallen, broken, evil world. But thank you that you have come to redeem, to redeem us and to change us. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work through this message today, through your word. Thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for having a plan for us. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. And I pray that as we, as we wrestle with this, God, as we meditate on the wonders of your love, the wonders of your creation, that we, would, that we would get right on that highway that leads us right to the cross because that's where we find grace and mercy in our time of need. Thank you that your word says if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God that you've made a way for all of us because we know all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short, all of us have missed the mark, Thank you that you've made a way through the birth of your son, through the death of your son, through the resurrection of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.